sensational. Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Eric and Michael. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so we just capped off two weeks of amazing tennis on both the women's side and the men's side. Uh, huge matches uh, today and yesterday. Obviously, yesterday was Venus and Serena. Today was Nadal and Federer. And I'm pretty sure that none of us, nobody, nobody in the tennis world was predicting what we were going to see these last two weeks, and especially when it came to the final. Would you guys both agree? Absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, It was so much shocking stuff happening that, uh, I mean, I wish I would have taken some bets on Vegas. Cause, uh, <laughs> could have got some good betting yeah, odds on, I, on uh, I return. Got, I could have got some money. Granted, I'd have lost all the money because I'd, I'd have went for Nadal. Mikey, you'd have, you'd have made out like a king, probably. I'd have so, cashed in. But, yeah, yeah, no, it was shocking, but it was – so it made it exciting, you know. In the last few, you kind of always knew what was going to happen. You know, Roger and Nadal hadn't really done a whole lot. You figure, all right, it's going to be Federer – not Federer, but uh, Djokovic and Murray, one of those are going to win or something like that. And you have Stan, you know, breaking through and all. But it was actually really exciting every day. I was, I was excited to, to see what was going on. Yeah, because the, the draw definitely day by day – changed from one thing to the next and it was never a certainty of somebody getting through even after day one day mm-hmm. two right, except if we're talking about the woman's side now obviously we can't uh you know we can't have we, nobody would have thought venus would have get to you know to the final it's been so many years for her uh which is it's sad because she's got you know medical condition um, with I can never remember the disease it's, uh, name. It's Shrogan's. Shrogan's, okay, yeah. right, and and obviously that's very difficult, and it just flares up from time to time, and that's kind of what I think has been her biggest roadblock. Though I will say this, um, it, was, it was a great run for her, but we'll get to that here in a bit. Um, so to start off this whole thing. I'd like to first talk about the women's draw. We're just going to touch on a few of the matches uh, that really surprised everybody. Um, There was a a ton of seeds falling, uh, high seeds, Kerber going out, and and Halep and various others. So the first one I want to talk about is Kerber losing to Coco Vanderway because Kerber has been the best player in tennis, the women's side, for about the last year. And uh, I know that Serena has won a couple slams too. However, Kerber's been the most consistent. Were you guys surprised? Now, obviously, Coco went to the semis, so it's not like you know she was ousted by somebody who just lost in the next round, which we see often. But were you surprised that Coco took her out as easily as she did? Absolutely. Um, in my eyes, I mean, I've watched Vandeweghe play enough to know that she has the type of game that can beat any of the top players. Now, with that being said, does she do it on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely not. Um, I was surprised more or less in the fashion that she won. She won very soundly. Yeah. Um, had it had it been a, a close three-set match and she won, then I could have said yes. But it was very surprising that she won in straight sets the way that she did and really gave Kerber no opportunity to do a whole lot in the match. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I watched that match and I was just stunned, really, uh, with the ease. I mean, Coco's always been a powerful player, but the consistency has never been there. You know, she could have a great match where she hit a ton of aces or maybe her forehand was on fire that day, but it never seemed to all coalesce into the kind of run that we saw where it just seemed like she was ruling, you know, match to match. I mean, okay, yeah, she had that really tight one against Bouchard. Uh, However, I mean, like once she won against Bouchard, it just felt like it was a tidal wave. Um, To be honest, I was really surprised that Venus took her down. I really, really thought that Vanderway was going to rip through Venus pretty easily and uh, that we would get a Vanderway Serena final, which would have been interesting, you know, because both are power players. But the way Vanderway was playing, I'm not saying that I thought Serena, Serena may have lost, but I think it would have been a good match. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next one Simona Halep losing to Shelby Rogers, who herself had a good run this week. So, again, not a player that lost, I believe, in the next round, but. Uh, not somebody I thought she'd lose to either, but then we found out that Halep had a knee injury. It was a first-round loss, uh, very low score line. Um, so surprising, yes, until then you found out that she was injured. So, uh, you know, hey, it happens, right? What, you know, what are you going to say? You know, injuries happen. Players play with them sometimes. It just, you know, it hurts, you know. It hurts completely their chances at doing anything in the draw. And when they lose, at least you know that they went out and tried, but it was never going to happen, not for them. Uh, I didn't watch the Hallett match. Uh, did you get a chance to look at that? Uh, I, I did I did watch the Hallett okay. match. Um, again, same thing as with the Kerber-Vandaway match. Um, Shelby Rogers plays a very big game as well, very similar to Vandaway. Um as far as the attacking style that they play. Um, but we remember that Shelby Rogers made a run last year, so is it a shock? Yes, it's a shock that she beat Halep in the first round. But, Mike, like you said, in seeing that you know there was a lingering injury for Halep and the fact that we've seen this out of Rogers before, you know, had we known those things, it may not have been as big a shock as it was. Um, but definitely still a shock, but I don't think like a, a world-beating shock in my opinion. No, it wasn't, you know, but at the time, the moment the match was over, yeah. But then the injury, finding out that it was an injury, uh, then not so much. Okay, so moving on to Radvanska, who loses to Lucic Baroni. Uh, again, we're finding seeds that are falling in the women's side, but they're falling the players who went on to have a huge run. So obviously Lucic Baroni, uh, this what 34-year-old tennis player who was once a prodigy uh, back in 1999, she went to I believe the Wimbledon finals, and uh, apparently she had a really she's had a really tumultuous life. Uh, she she's never said precisely what happened to her, but all indications are that she came through a lot. So a surprising result? Definitely, because Radvanska has always been a good player, but Lucic Baroni just ripped through her like nothing. <laughs> it was it was like the Halep scoreline, except as far as we know, Radvanska didn't have an injury. So this was a truly amazing result from a player that seemed fit. 
Yeah, and and I think uh, this is the year of uh, the older generation really uh, believing in themselves because we saw so many people, uh, you know, come through and do things that you didn't expect them to do. I mean, you look at the match. I mean, she was better statistically in every category except for uh, net points one than Redwanska. So it wasn't she beat her in a particular stat. I mean, the, the whole way down, first serves, second serves, returns, you know, she beat her and everything else. She had a lot more enforced errors, but I mean, you're looking at uh, Luch just had over 30 winners and Redwanska didn't even have 10. So, you know, it could have been Redwanska having a bad day, uh, maybe being surprised, you know, going into it with the mentality of, all right, you know, this is 34-year-old, you know, and maybe took her for granted and then Luch Speroni played better than maybe she expected, but... You know, it's nice to see a resurgence of some of these older people, but uh, I was surprised. But when I saw the stats and how well she played, I was like, this is just, you know, a girl on fire. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, uh, as the tournament progressed, I mean, this match was a big shock. Um, Redwanska being one of the most consistent players for the last, we'll say, 10 years. I mean, she's always been in the second half of a major, so to see her get beat early, but to see her get beat early by Lucic Baroni, someone who, for for the most part of the last ten years, was really not really even on tour. Um, I might, Mike, you had alluded earlier that you know she hasn't really come out. I did hear one article that um, basically the biggest issue was is that her her father was her coach. Um, and apparently there was some abusive uh, bit of a relationship with her father, um, which caused a lot of that teen prodigy stuff to go away and and basically turn into you know a bad situation and then end up with her leaving the game for quite a while. Um, but to be a resurgence like this, uh, this late in her career, um, I... I Props to her. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't just a one and done, like you said. I mean, she made it the whole way to the semis. <clears throat> she even took out Pliskova, you know, who people were pegging as being a winner, finalist, you know, being able to take out Serena. And I mean, I'm wrong, it was a three-setter. But I remember actually watching that match uh, because I, was, I saw the run happening. And, you know, it, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, she does more than just this tournament. I'm hoping she takes a lot from it and we see more of her later. Right. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, we've seen, we saw Capriotti go down in flames in her teens because of uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on there. There was, was that, a, Mike, was that Australian uh, girl from a few years ago that she has a really, she had a really bad relationship with her father, a very, um, um, wasn't Lucic Baroni, it was somebody else. I cannot remember her name. But it was a similar yeah, it's situation. Not, it's not coming to me either, yeah. but yeah, I know what you're talking about, right. though. So, you know, props to her and uh, good luck for her for the rest of the year because, you know, it's always a good story. And it's just nice to see that she came through all that turmoil to have a great moment. It's players that go through so much appreciate the good things so much more. They don't take it for granted. So good for her. All okay. right. So moving on, we have um, Wozniacki losing to Kanta, who, again, same thing, right? I mean... Wozniacki was ousted by somebody who went on to compete in the semis against uh, Serena. Had a great tournament. In fact, Serena was very uh, wary of her going into the match. I know it was a straight sets victory by Serena, but, you know, Kanta upset Wozniacki. Wozniacki, again, not a huge power player, but always very consistent. But Kanta just, 
kind of blew her off the court and and had the best run she's had uh, so far in a major. Uh, so what do you guys think about this one? Well, um, I was going to say, because uh, it was it was the quarters um, that Conta made uh, because she had to play Mac Rover, uh, But You're right. It, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would say it was really an upset because, I mean, Conta's was, was number nine seed and Wozniacki was 17. And Conta's the one that's been – Pretty doing doing well since so what middle last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's had a she's had a very you know strong run in the last you know six to eight months. Um, but yeah, I mean, I in my yeah, I mean, it was a very lopsided victory, um, which I agree with you, Mike. It was a very lopsided victory, and I mean, Wozniacki doesn't get beat lopsidedly very often. Um, but Conta's attacking style that she has just really you know provokes people to go for more, and I feel like that's kind of what happened. Um, either that or the fact that Wozniacki was just shell shocked, because uh, Conta can go out and literally just hit everything uh, about as hard as she can and just blow you off the court. Oh yeah, because she did that to uh, uh, Makarova. Makarova is the one who upset Subakova. It yeah. was the same scoreline as uh, Conta beating Wozniacki. It was six one six three, just reversed. Yep. So she was really taking it to everybody uh, up and up until she ran into a, a small wall called. Three Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. wall. That would be a good a way to bit. put it. Someone called it the Great Wall of China. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it could be the Great Wall. All right. That's, uh, that's a good emphasis there. So, Sibylkova, uh, again, she loses, as you mentioned, to Makarova. It was a tight scoreline. You know, it was a good match 6 3, uh, 7 6, 6 3. So, it was uh, a good one. But Sibylkova, who I mentioned in our preview podcast, being uh, somebody who is a dark horse. Uh, she's made, I believe, the finals of the Australian Open before. She's uh, always been a, a little, to me at least, a little powerhouse. Uh, small package, big game. Uh, but uh, her margin for error is not big. So if she's off at all, she's off. And um, I think we we definitely, you know, we saw that. So uh, unfortunately, she did not make a the kind of run that I thought she might have a chance at doing, uh, but with the fast courts this year, I think it surprised a lot of people. I think the speed of the courts, because it was changed uh, from being a bit slower than it is to to being more like the U.S. Open hard courts, I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of these people are falling because it's just a big, you know, surface change. And it's uh-huh. it's a change to your game. You come down here, you used to this kind of court, and then all of a sudden, balls are skidding, not bouncing. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, you know, looking at that scoreline, the only thing I'd say it was it was really close, and it really just came down to uh, the break points. They both had almost the equal number of break opportunities, like fourteen or fifteen apiece, and then just you know, Makarova was able to you know do what she needed to do, get more break points, because otherwise, when you look at it, everything about the stat sheets on that uh, on that match, they were really close in terms of winners and unforced errors. So. It looked a little different because of the six two and six three sets that Makarova won, but it was indeed a lot closer. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah, and definitely because Makarova is one of the most hot and cold players on tour. Um, she's had lots of upsets in the last you know four or five years where she's beaten players that we never expected her to beat, but then she's also Losing had losses where she's lost to people inexplicably. Um, I, I remember one reference at the U.S. Open. Uh, she was, you know, up in a match. She had it well in hand and just fell apart and literally was crying on court. Yeah. Um, because she just totally lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yeah, again, it is an upset. Um, I think we all, you know, unanimously thought that 
uh, Sibylkova was going to go a lot further than she did uh, and be more of a factor down the stretch. But credit to Makarova. She just played the big points better. Yeah. Okay, so our last talking point for the women's side, Venus making a great run. None of us saw that coming. Um, I thought maybe a third-round result, uh, quarterfinals at best, would have been a really good showing for her. But, you know, all credit to her for getting through some some tough matches. You know, her draw was uh, not the hardest. I'll, I'll give – I will say this. She probably had the easiest – one of the easier draws that I've seen. She didn't hit anything until uh, Pavila uh, Chikova. So – and that was in the quarterfinals – of course, she'd be Vanderway in the semis, but you know what? All credit to, to uh, Venus for making a great run. Good for her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been a huge fan of Venus. Um, I mean, we we just talked about earlier about the um, you know the the showgrounds that she has that it really causes a, a big problem for her on a day to day basis. But just seeing her come back and make a run like this, it, it's it reminisces you back to the times when she was dominating. And when she was legitimately a huge threat to Serena, um, that she no longer has been. Um, but I think that she played a you know a, a really stellar match to get to the final. Um, but uh, Vandeweghe just kind of, I feel like her serve just went away from her in the match, and she wasn't able to really stay on top and keep that lead that she had in most of the matches where scoreboard pressure was a big factor for her. But she really wasn't able to do that against Venus. Venus took the ball very early and and really put her in bad situations quickly. And and nerves, too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do yeah. think nerves played a factor. And let's be honest, Venus has been there a dozens lot. of times. She knows exactly what to do in those situations. And it definitely came down to that. Right. Okay, so let's move on to the men's side of the draw. Looking at some of the bigger things. And we'll stop, start at the very top um, with... Djokovic, while he is not number one, he is the biggest shock of the tournament. Uh, losing the Istaman, it's a big deal. Uh, Djokovic has been in kind of a malaise for a while now. Uh, Post-French Open, I know he made the, the U.S. Open final against Stan, but you can argue that he's still trying to figure some things out. We touched on that in the preview podcast episode, but this was just... A case where Istaman, who's not really known to be a big game player, was simply steady all match long. He he didn't overplay. He didn't uh, try. To, he didn't play out of his skin. He stuck with what he knew he could do, and it was just consistent point to point. And it ultimately burned. I think Djokovic out ultimately. Um, yeah, I think the big thing here is uh. You know, it's not. It's surprising, but the top players there. There's no longer that feeling of like immortality. All right, but when it was Nadal and Federer, and even then Nadal, you know, didn't get to the finals of, of a ton of hard court Master Series or anything. But that, but, but there's always like this stigma around them. You know, back when they were cleaning up titles, where you know you went into the match already feeling defeated, already basically think you lost. But this day and age, you know, you started to see. You know, it took longer for Murray and Djokovic to start winning their titles than it did for Roger, and especially for Nadal being him so young, that people, you know, go into these tournaments now with the feeling that, that they can be upset. I mean, you saw Nadal, 
you know, for a couple of years, get upset early at Wimbledon. He lost to Verdasco here last year in the first round. You know, yeah, granted, it's Verdasco, but that's still an upset, you know, whatever way you want to call it. So I think, um, and it, it's exciting for the tennis world. I mean, I know back when it was Roger and Rafa, even start, people started to get a little bored of it always being them. And then what we don't want to see is it just become Djokovic and Murray now. You know, so I think it's kind of good for the game. You know, I, I want to see my your favorite people win, but it makes it exciting again. Now you're looking at, all right, any tournament, anybody can win. It's kind of like football where it's any given Sunday now. It can literally almost happen. You saw it happen on the men's side, happen halfway on the women's side because nobody saw Venus, you know, getting to the finals. Serena wasn't really a surprise at all, but it's one of those things that, you know, it was surprising for him to lose so early. But like you said, some things might be going on. Uh, you know, he's probably going to regroup, especially now that, uh, you know, he saw, you know, Murray go out right after him. You know, it's probably going to get them thinking, all right, we need to rethink this because if unseeded players ousts the top two seeds, it's that, that close, there's no fear anymore. So, Yeah, and I, I've been feeling that uh, that there's basically something like that going on in the men's game uh, for a while now that – that those top guys no longer are invincible any longer. Um, I'm not exactly sure what's causing that. Um, it could have just been, you know, the string of upsets that have happened over the last few years. But basically, um, Ist- Istaman just took the bull by the horns. Um, he was down two sets to one. Obviously, at that point, we would have looked at it and said, you know, Djokovic has got this. He's going to wrap it up in four. Uh, and then he loses a really close fourth set tie break, and then Istman just finds a way in the fifth. Um, I I said in the you know we all said, but I said in the um, the preview podcast that um, that Djokovic there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. His confidence is not there at all right now. Right. We've never seen him lose to a guy like Istman and for a long time. <laughs> and 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 where do you see what? When do you ever see Djokovic? only convert six of 15 break points. I mean, we're talking absolutely the guy who's been top three, like the last eight to 10 years in terms of break points converted. And he, you know, he only broke six times and this has been broke him four. you know, that's not something you would expect either. So I think, you know, there's like some confidence issues could be fitness related or, I mean, hey, he's got a family now. You know, he kind of did everything he needed to do. Now all he can do is, you know, try to get another French and, you know, he'll have two titles there. Just, just had like the stat that. line I mean, now, yeah. It's really it. Once you get the, you know, the last big thing you wanted to, to do, now it's about finding other motivating factors. I mean, we saw it with Nadal. I, I think that was how it was the last couple of years where he lost a lot of motivation, you know, added Moya, and, you know, we saw some good results already. So... I think Djokovic will pick it up. He's going to go into the next, you know, few months still being a favorite to win it's a lot of tournaments. Him and Murray, so I don't, I wouldn't count him out, but definitely uh, he needs to regroup. Yeah, definitely. All right, so Murray losing to Misha Zverev. Um, I don't know which upset uh, was more surprising, <laughs> the Istaman or the Misha. I, I really think I guess you could put him one A and one B because. Well, I still think it, I think Istman's still more surprising because when you watched him play, it wasn't the way Misha was playing. Misha's serve and volley was was clean. I mean, it, it was perfect. It was wasn't perfect. He was getting lucky 
and Murray was playing really badly. Yeah. Misha was actually just out playing Murray a lot of the time. Right. Murray was confused by the serve and volley. You know, you, you rarely see it. And when you see it, you don't see it by people who play it that well anymore. Yeah. I mean, Roger would probably be the best person that if he wanted to serve and volley, he'd be the guy that I'd expect to do it and would beat people. So I think he surprised Murray and Murray didn't have an answer for it. Because when I, when I watched the match and I, I even said to myself, I was like, if Murray can't figure out a way to break this guy, you know, he's going to be in trouble because Misha was starting to break him fairly easily. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was surprising. Uh, you're right. I think the, the strategy was perfect. Uh, I, I think Misha, unlike Istaman, I think Misha simply played out of his mind. I think it was a combination of the strategy the strategy of the, the match as well as just almost a go-for-broke kamikaze style of play. Um, I think that – look, this is the same guy, and I mentioned this to you, Michael, uh, I think the day after, where mm-hmm. – this is the same guy that Nadal beat uh, like a couple of weeks earlier. It was like six one six two, right? I mean, yeah. it was yeah. it was not yeah. even close. I watched that match. I think it was over in less than an hour. It did not take that long. So for that guy then to come out and have that kind of match against Murray, you know, who's number one in the world, it just completely surprised me. So all credit to him. Yeah, Kamikaze, I think is the perfect word. I, I feel like Zverev came into the tournament and just said, you know what. I'm going to serve and volley and see what happens. Uh, and I honestly feel like that was his mentality. He came out, he served and volleyed, and, and he did it magnificently. Probably one of the best displays of serve and volley we've seen in a long time, really. I do, On a I consistent think. basis. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric, that Murray was just shell-shocked. He could not figure out and he couldn't pass what him. he needed to do. He, he couldn't. He couldn't no. pass well, him. He could, he could pass him. Well, he could, but... What was happening? Because I mean, you look at the stat sheet. He, you know, Murray didn't have a lot of errors. He had seventy winners. But the problem was he couldn't string the points together. Zverev could string his seven volleys and would break Murray, and then Murray might hold a game pretty easily or something. So what it was really because you know Zverev had eight of seventeen break points one versus five of thirteen for Murray. So he had more break chances and converted three more. But it seemed because when I was watching it. It was like Zverev had a, had a plan. You know, if he got to like 30, 15, 30, or 30 all, the next two points he played like out of his mind because his best shot was to do it back-to-back and not let not let it get the deuce and add and then, you know, kind of go on and make the game really long. When he broke them, for the most point, he got like the two points in a row um, to break. Yeah. So it was, it, was, it was a good game. Okay. All right, so uh, Kyrgios collapses against Andrea Seppi. I'd, I'd say we should be surprised by this, but uh, at the same time, no. Um, Kyrgios was up huge in this match. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a pretty comfortable one for him. Uh, and then he goes and he just falls apart. And uh, I, I guess... Kyrgios irritates me like Gael Monfils irritates me um, because it's untapped potential, I think. Kyrgios, to me, is the most gifted player who's under, what, 22, 23 years old. Uh, He's easily the most gifted and athletic player on tour uh, under that age. He could be huge. He could win multiple slams. Honestly, I think like... um, 
uh, what's her name, uh, Stevens, on the women's side, I think she is, like both of them seem like they're exceptional athletes, but I just don't know how much heart or love for the game is there. It's it's all between the ears uh, for both of them, but Kyrgios is just so um, – he is like a flame. He basically can burn extremely hot and can just blow guys off the court, but then at the same time he could absolutely just fizzle out and just, well, like we've seen before, just quit. Basically, during a match, pull an Agassi. Um, yeah, well, yeah, an early <laughs> yeah. Agassi, that's for yeah. sure. So, yeah, um, I mean, Kyrgios's talent level is is as good as anybody's right now. But you know, matches like this where you're up two sets a- against a veteran guy and you have the firepower to put it away, you, you can't be losing matches like this. And this this kind of match outcome is what, for me, has shown that Kyrgios is by no means ready. Um, to be one of the next guys, the next up. Yeah. Any thoughts, yeah. Eric? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, the match turned on I me. Mean, set three is really what happened, and, and you got to look at it that, uh, you know, he couldn't make any inlets on Seppi's game. Seppi's a grinder. We saw it with the French Open there a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He had a really good run. Um, but but the, the, the third set, I like to point out that, you know, Kyrgios, his first serve percentage was under 50%. Which is really low for him. It's really low for him, especially someone who hits that many aces. Mm-hmm. And but he won all of his serves on he won all of his first serves, but he was under fifty percent winning his second serve. You can't do that if you have a terrible first serve percentage, and you're not winning any of your second serves. I mean, you're you're not winning the set by far. You know, so he didn't. It uh, wasn't doing anything on the return of serve. He only won five points on Seppi's serve the entire. Uh, the entire set. Yeah, now, Seppi, Seppi doesn't have a huge yeah. serve either. And, so. and, and now, don't get me wrong, Seppi only won eight on him, but Seppi made a count. There's only one break point in that whole set, and Seppi converted it, and that's where he got the break. And I think that's what killed it. I think, you know, Kyrgios didn't expect him to have, you know, fight back. He fought back, and I don't know if Kyrgios felt like he wanted to walk off the court to go play some basketball, because that's apparently he <laughs> loves, he said it before, yeah. his first love is basketball, which yep. is. You know, McEnroe went off on him. I was listening to him talk on, you know, you don't say something like that. If you're playing your sport, you know, you're supposed, that's supposed to be the sport you love. If you love basketball more, go play basketball then. You know, why, what are you doing on the court? But, you know, it was the same way. He just, it's like if he didn't get the first serve in, he gave up because set four was even worse. He yeah. won two of his nine second serves in that set. Now, he, he got up to higher percentage, but it's like that was his downfall. And I don't know, it's a mental thing. It's like if the first serve wasn't in, he was like, oh, well, might as well just throw it away because, you know, that's exactly what happened. And again, he could not break Seppi. No break chances in set four. And in set five, he had five break chances, but still only converted one. Seppi was just the better guy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Dominic Team versus Benoit Perry. Uh, Benoit Per. He... Uh, you know, Dominic Team is one of those up-and-coming guys. I really like his game. He is an all-out aggression kind of player. Of course, that can sometimes lead to being a hot and cold player, depending uh, on the on the surface that he's playing. But I like it. Unfortunately, Benoit is a he's a a bit of a mystery as a player. He's got a lot of talent, but he is. Definitely one of those very hot or very cold players. And I think in this instance, I think he just was able to come up with the, the right game plan and take a team out. 
Okay, um, so one thing I gotta change here is uh, team beat Benoit Pair, team lost to GoFan. Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, yeah, we a uh, l- little bit off on the on, yeah, on that. But yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, GoFan but, uh, beat him in three. Yeah, you're um, correct. Yeah, GoFan beat him in three. You know, team took the first set. Uh, you know, you knew it was gonna be tough, a tough match. Because I was actually watching that one. Right. It was a great match. And then you know, it was a tough second set tie break, and there was a momentum swing. Because team was up on him in the beginning of the uh, of the uh, tie break, mm-hmm. I think it was uh, like three one. He had like a mini break. It was three one, four one, something, something like, like that. that. Team got a big then, lead early, and then GoFan came back, and I think that's what kind of crushed the confidence uh, because the, the, the two sets after GoFan won, you know, pretty easily. So he either got you got a lot of confidence from that, and I think the uh, team, you know, showed a little bit of his of his age too. You know, nothing against team and GoFan. I know the seeds show that uh, uh, teams rank lower. But in the last couple of years, GoFan has played tough against the better seeds. It's like he kind of plays above his level or plays better than he does against lower people. So, I mean, he took it to Djokovic pretty decently last year at one of the, at one of the majors. You know, mm-hmm. he still yeah, lost, he pushed him. But yeah. he, he pushed him pretty well. So, it was definitely a good match by GoFan. And, I like him. He's a short guy. <laughs> yeah. And since I'm really Which short, we're always positive about because yeah. we're short. Anytime I can see someone who's really short do really well, that's why I was always um, uh, not just an adult fan. You know, I like a fan, but it was the other other spinner, Frere. Frere's a pretty short guy too, so I always pulled for him just to got to keep it with the short people. It, yeah. It's Yeah, it's the spirit of, uh, of us being small, so we've got to root for the small guy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, GoFan has been uh, among basically the most consistent guys on tour um, I feel like he's kind of sliding into um, – he's sliding a little bit into David Ferrer's spot uh, in my opinion as being that guy that's going to be there at the second week and could do damage. Uh, but yeah, team team came out firing early yep. and I agree with you, Eric, that you know in that tie break, team got an early lead and GoFan just stormed back in the tie break and that pretty much just stopped team's momentum altogether uh, and just – he went away. Uh, I'm not saying that he, you know, tanked it or anything, but GoFan just basically put it away from then forward. He just put the gas pedal down and was gone. And and team's been on the on the tour three years longer. I mean, he's, I mean, sorry, uh, three years less than GoFan. So it's one of those things that you know, team's one of the younger guys. He's ranked, I mean, not ranked, but he's age 23. So I think he's got you know a bright future ahead of him. Um, Hopefully, you know, he keeps it up. It's kind of like he's going to be an underdog for a little bit until he has a breakthrough mm-hmm. and gets to, like, a semi. Um, I think he's always going to be counted as an underdog, which I think he needs to use to his advantage, fire himself up. But you know, I'm excited to see, you know, what uh, what he can do. Yep. Okay. All right. So moving on, we have uh, Zonga losing to Wawrinka. So, yeah, this was uh, a match I thought that was going to be a lot better than it was. Um I guess I expected, I expected I think a little more fight out of Zonga. He was playing so well coming into that match, and again I know it's against Stan. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying you know, hey, uh, Zonga lost to a chump or anything, but I just thought there would be more there, more fight. And, and granted, I know Zonga is now in his 30s as well, so uh, that's always a factor. But then again, so is Stan. But again, I guess we look at it this way. This is Stan. This is not the Stan of old. This is, you know, the Stanimal. And when he gets going and when he really gets his teeth into a match, it's it's hard to shake him loose. So um, 
I, I guess I wanted to see a little, you know, even just a set taken off, but I guess that didn't happen. Yeah, and I mean, for me, Songa, Songa's a great player. We love watching him play. Yeah. Um, he does a lot of things. I got to see him play live once, um, and it's amazing seeing the way that he moves around the court and how powerful you know he really is as a player. Um, but in the last few years, for the most part, with uh, Songa, he when he get he can get to the second week very easily. Uh, he doesn't really struggle too early in the early rounds against guys. You know, he usually has a pretty you know tidy way. You know, does a tidy way through the the draw. And then into the second week, he usually then goes up against a much higher seed and falls apart. Um, Stan played just a very clean and crisp match. There wasn't a whole lot of excitement in the match. Stan went out, he played his game, and it was over. Yeah. Um, I mean, Songa went for a lot, which is what he normally does. And when he's not firing, um, and you go against a guy that uh, you know hits the stay the pace that Stan does, it's going to be difficult for you to fire back. And that's basically what happened. Uh, Stan fired first, and Songa couldn't reply. Yeah, and and it, a lot of it came down to you know it, it was not a big seesaw, but Stan did what needed to be done most is convert break points. He was perfect. He only had three chances, and he broke all three times. Whereas, Which is impressive against Songa with a big yeah, serve. Yeah, I'd expected a, a lot more um, out of Songa against break point because he's he's a lot better than that. And then uh, Songer couldn't convert on Stan. He only had one of six breakpoint chances that he actually converted uh, there. So I think that that is what did him in because they both had a good amount of winners. He did get more unforced errors out of Songa, uh, for sure. I mean, Stan had his own, uh, you know, good number. I think he had like twenty-eight, and then but I'm pretty sure Songa had like forty. And you can't do that if you're not breaking people and you're doing too many unforced errors. That's why you're gonna have a straight sets loss. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right. So moving to Nishikori following the Feder in five. Uh, so this was a back and forth match. Uh, really tested both players' metal. Uh, obviously, I think uh, Nishikori simply gassed out in the fifth. I, I, you know, he fought and fought and fought in this match. Uh, really put up a massive fight. Uh, I was actually pleased with how well he did. However, uh, I think when he got into that fifth set, he just couldn't uh, put forth that extra effort. I think he was also feeling it in the legs big time at that point, and Feder was able to, um, you know, get by him. Just, just kind of, just barely, but uh, he managed to do what he had to do and uh, pulled the match out. Yeah, I think it came down to a uh, a factor of experience at this point. I mean, Ishikori's gotten to the back end of some big tournaments, but. Let's be honest, no one's gotten to more back-end tournaments than Roger has. And, uh, I mean, Roger, you know, came out, he lost a really tight first set. And from there, you know, you're wondering how that was going to go from there. But, uh, I mean, Roger put the pedal put the pedal down and, and just, you know, ran off two sets quick. Uh, I think Nishikori was a little shell-shocked at that point. He wasn't really sure uh, what to answer with. Um, but he reset, he regrouped for the fourth set. He came out, he played a very, very good clean set in the fourth um, and just basically stole it away from Roger, who from beginning to end really played a very clean match. Um, and then in the fifth set, uh, I agree, Mike, I just think that Nisha Corey physically and mentally just he wasn't prepared to go five sets that day. Um, and, and Roger just, he stayed, you know, stayed the course. Um, he served unbelievably, which is 
you know, in my opinion, one reason why he won the title. His serving was out of this world. And he did the same thing against Nishikori, who is better, one of the better returners on tour. Yeah. Yeah, I think it came down to Nishikori's fitness as well, too. Like you said, you know, that's one of his biggest things lately is getting injured. He had the back injury, mm-hmm. I think, is one of the things that had bothered him last year. And not saying that came into uh, play here, but, uh, you know, I think once and this is my opinion, because Murray had already lost. I think Nadal, I mean, not Nadal, sorry, but I think Federer um, smelled blood in the water. He, he knew that was going to be his biggest uh, player to beat on that side of the draw was going to be Murray. And I think when Murray went down, I think Federer saw the end game. You know, not saying you wouldn't have beaten Murray anyway, but when your biggest competitor like Nadal had Djokovic lose, I think he smelled blood in the water. He felt great, and I, I think no matter who he was playing, he was going to about kill himself to try to win that match because it's going to be his best chance that he's had in the last few years to win a title because he knew he didn't have to face Murray he didn't have to face Djokovic. So the only other people left in the draw that had a winning record against him would have been Nadal. Everybody else, Federer has beaten before, so I thought that put a lot of belief into him. He had a lot of confidence, and I'm pretty sure that motivated him more than he's probably ever been motivated besides going for that French Open title. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that's helped him push him through that. I agree. Okay, so moving on, we have Nadal nearly getting past Dimitrov. So baby fed, as he hates to be called, understandably, I, I get it. It's not fun to be essentially called the mini-me version of uh, a fetter, no, however. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so Nadal... Plays a four-hour, basically a five-hour match. I think only a few minutes shy of five hours. It was a seesaw match. Very, very tough. Long, long rallies. Uh, Dimitrov was really solid off the backhand wing. Solid off of both wings. And his serve was excellent. It really came down to, I believe, experience in this match. Uh, like you said before about Federer being experienced, in the obviously so experienced in the back half of uh, Grand Slam tournament. I think this came down to not just um, desire. Obviously, both players wanted it real bad. Nadal wanted to get back to uh, having a chance to win a slam. And the one that I think he's wanted most since, um, I'd say, probably since he won uh, the U.S. Open in 2010. I think he's wanted another Australian Open. He's had three chances now, 12, 14, and this year. Uh, Hasn't been able to pull it out, even though he's had chances. But uh, at least in the semis, it's just, I think, a matter of Nadal knowing when to make that little extra effort and uh, strategically. And uh, I think just guts, a little guts, some heart, some strategy, all kind of managed to get him that uh, one or point or two points that decided that match. Um, oh, exactly. I, I, and you look at if you look at the stat sheet, it was every category statistically was so close. There wasn't a lot that was separating these guys either from the first serve or the second serve. Um, break chances had only broken one more time. Uh, receiving points won. It was sixty six to sixty four. So it was one, it was the closest receiving points won match of the tournament. Uh, where they were that close. Everybody else had always been about 10%. The winner was always about 10% higher. Um, but this was really close. It came down to, I think, Nadal needs to do more net points. Yeah. 
than what he does. I mean, that's the, the he did he came in twenty nine times and won twenty five points, and he did it when he needed to. I just think he needs to use it a little bit more. I think he doesn't believe that he's as good of a volleyer as he actually is. When you watch him volley shots and come up behind, it's it's a thing of beauty. It's like Roger esque with his volleying. I mean, because he plays doubles a lot. You know, not as much anymore, but he's won uh, gold with uh, Mark Lopez. You know, uh, at the Olympics, he's won a master series. Uh, yeah, a couple ma- a couple master series with him as well too. So he's had a lot of practice with it. I think that's something that's what helped him because when he was down in the fifth set, yeah, and he was down break, break love point. 30, 15, 40, something like that. He did yeah, two yeah. Ba- two back to back net points. Uh, and then got him back to even, and it, there was there was each one was a thing of beauty. And I think you know if he would have incorporated a little bit better, he would have gotten that fourth set, wouldn't have went to a tiebreak, or could have won it in the tiebreak if he had done a little bit more net play. Yeah, yeah. I I put the star on this match as the match of the tournament. I know that the final was really really good, but I honestly believe quality wise, this was the best match of the tournament. Uh, Grigor Dimitrov. Uh, I think, in my opinion, shed baby fed in this match. Agreed. Um, he he came out and played the best match I have ever seen him play. And he's had some good matches against some top guys before. But he lost. But he's got to take a lot away from this. Um, Nadal really wanted it. Uh, and he played really well. But Dimitrov came out um, and really, really showed that he wasn't going to go away. And he actually never did go away, in my opinion. No, he didn't. He was there. Set to set, point to point, game to game. He was always there. Um, and I agree with you both, though. It just came down to the fact that Nadal knew what to do at the right time in that fifth set. Because if you remember, they were neck and neck through that set. You know, there was a break, then it got back on serve, but at four all, boom, there it was. Uh, and Nadal, you know, grasped it, and that was the end of the match. Um, big heartbreak for Dimitrov, but I think that he has to take a lot away from this and he must continue to do what he did in that match because against a lesser Nadal or someone else, he easily wins that match in straight sets Yeah, because he was on fire. Right. He was, he was playing great and props to him. And uh, I mean, he's still a young guy. He's got a lot of chances ahead of him, uh, but this is now the time where he needs to make a move. He really needs to to see the prize ahead and know he has the ability to do it. He cannot take a step back anymore. It has to be only steps forward. I think if he does that, he uh, he can win a Grand Slam. So uh, we'll see how that plays out this year and what steps he takes to make that a reality. All right, so last one, Feder and Wawrinka semi. Um, good match. Uh, it's one of those matches. It's, it's like the Nishikori match, you know, where – Back and forth, just just a back and forth match. It, but it seemed the quality wise, it wasn't fantastic. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. It was like if one player was playing well, the other player was not playing well. If Federer was playing great, Stan was t- making a ton of errors, uh, and vice versa. It just was a back and forth, lopsided match in a way. But Stan had his chances. He really could have pulled this match out. Uh, unfortunately. He just faded in the in the fifth set, and that's the only thing that that Federer needed to uh, to win. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, um, some people will say there was a little bit of gamesmanship going in, on between these two 
Uh, you know, Stan loses the first two sets, takes a medical timeout. Roger loses the third and fourth, takes a medical timeout. Um, there was talk of gamesmanship maybe going on there, but I agree with you, Mike. Uh, it was it was a simple fact that one guy was hot and the other one wasn't. Um, I will say that the number one thing that stuck out for me is Ro- Roger came into net a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and Stan didn't have the answer in a lot of those cases. Um, Roger also used that slice backhand to draw Stan in a lot, and although Stan is a good volleyer, that is not where he wants to be. No. Um, and I think that was the big difference. Roger took advantage at net where Stan could not. Yeah, Stan's definitely a power baseline hitter. I mean, we saw him blow uh, Djokovic off the court each time he's beat him in a major, um, and that's two Djokovic's strongest wing, the backhand side, uh, a lot of times too. So he's definitely not a guy who's a fan of coming up unless it's on his terms. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Federer didn't let that happen. It was based on Federer's terms. All right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, proving that no matter how many uh, Grand Slams Warinka has won, won recently – He's still the better Swiss player, <laughs> right? Can't can't uh, can't uh, go against that notion. All right, so let's move into the women's final. Serena versus Venus. It was uh, six four six four six four. It was um, quality was there. It was you know if you looked at the winners, they're actually not that far off. I think it was something like twenty eight to twenty one or twenty nine to twenty one um, in terms of those stats. Uh, let's see. It's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, everything was re- relatively ten, close. Ten aces for Serena, seven for Venus. Um, you know, 27 winners to 21. Unforced, pretty close. Really, this just came down to uh, a couple of breaks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, we could be looking at the exact same score on the other side. If if Venus would have broken her twice, you know, it would be a 6 4, six, four victory for her. So, um, it was a quality match. Um, unfortunately, it was just a matter, I think, of Serena really wanting and needing this more. Uh, I think Venus was, in a lot of ways, just kind of happy to be there. I'm not saying she didn't try. Uh, she will always try in every match, but it just – Serena wanted it just a little bit more because she needed to get past Steffi, and this is the time that she finally did it. That, that monkey is off her back. She doesn't have to worry about it anymore. No, now now she's free to go after Margaret Court, uh, <laughs> who has the uh, record for most titles, amateur and professional, twenty four. Yeah. So if she gets you know one more, she'll tie her. If she goes longer, one more after that, she'll be unanimously the most decorated uh, female tennis player of all time. Already the most decorated of the Open era. Uh, but who's to say she doesn't want to just be considered uh, for all of tennis in history? So hopefully, you know, being. Uh, uh, good compatriot, you know, she's engaged in everything. I hope this isn't her like achieving what she wanted, and then you know she she retires early. I'd really like to see her. I mean, while she's playing now, you know, go at least through this year, and then you know if she wins another title or two, or doesn't win any, maybe makes it. But I, I hope she plays for a little bit longer because uh, I mean we got some people in the wings. Coco, I'm feeling good about her for the American side. You know the way she played that uh, you know we can have. Um, you know, more Americans on the female side, uh, you know, come through and maybe win some more majors for us. So I watched a bit of the match. It, it was the first five games were ridiculous because they didn't hold. No, they were just no, no, no. Neither of them could hold to start the match at all. Yeah. It was a typical uh, Williams sisters final, uh, in my opinion. And then after that, I mean, Serena, I mean, because they traded breaks back and forth for the first five games. 
But then after that, Serena tightened up that serve, and then as did Venus, really. Venus did too, but Venus didn't get another breakpoint opportunity yeah. after that. And Serena in the in the second set had six chances, and it took it took all six to get her break. But I think it was just one of those Venus couldn't figure out uh, how to break Serena's serve after she fixed what she was doing wrong there, and that's kind of you know what hurt her. Yeah, I looked at this as this was a typical Williams final. Um, I, you know, I'm always a big fan of Venus and Serena, but I've been a little bit more of a fan for Venus. But any time that these two take the court, I, I don't really have the belief that Venus can beat Serena not, in a big match any yeah, longer. Not anymore. Uh, and I'm not talking about the, the you know because of the Shoguns or anything like that. Before the Shoguns showed up, I mean Serena for the most part when it came down to a big match against her sister, she won. Yep. Almost every time. Um, she basically plays a slightly different game than Venus does. They're both more or less baseliners. Venus being slightly bit more, you know, coming into net and things like that. But um, just Serena is able to do things just a little bit better. And the major thing between the two is that Serena plays a much cleaner game than Venus does. Venus's margin of error is, a, you know, a lot less, or a lot more, I should say, uh, than, than what Serena's is. And... It was a good match. I agree with you guys both. It was a good final, uh, albeit a straight sets. Maybe would have liked to seen a little more uh, happen in that. But um, I like the games to last longer. There was yeah. Uh, I mean they they for for being twenty games played. You know you're looking at um, the total points. You know besides the breaks being entered in there, the total points weren't uh, weren't they weren't high. I mean you're looking at uh, Serena won sixty nine points versus fifty nine for for Venus. Most of those points were in the first set. The second set was it was like whoever was serving just won their game almost at love for the most part, except for when Serena on that uh, one or two games got her break chances. But it was a really quick second set, and I think you know I liked the match, but I think everybody wanted it to last a little longer. We all wanted a little bit more drama with these two. We wanted yeah. not necessarily drama between them, but drama within the match. Um, well, this is the last it, it, no point chance did, they probably yeah. have. When, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to think that they're going to meet in another Grand Slam final. It's probably unlikely. Not saying it can't happen, but this is probably the last one. So you were hoping for a little bit more of a nail biter, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, guys. We at the Tennis Addict Podcast enjoy conversation, as you can tell. Thing is, we don't just like to sit around and talk to each other about tennis. We like to engage with the fans. That is you, right? So if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a tennis fan. I don't expect you would be otherwise. So here's the thing. We want to get emails or voicemails from you. What did you think about the Australian Open? What do you think about this player? What do you think about the prospects for the season? Do you love tennis? Do you like what we're doing? Do you have any opinion on how this podcast seems to be going? Do you have any suggestions? Those are the things we're looking for, okay? So here's the thing. If you want to send an email to us, you can do so at tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, Tennis Addict Podcast. One big word, at gmail.com. So here's the thing. iTunes. Everybody knows about iTunes, and chances are if you've listened to podcasts, you know that people rate podcasts on iTunes. Here's the thing. That's what we're looking for as well. If you would be so kind as to go to iTunes and give us a rating. It could be anything you want. It doesn't have to be five stars. Rate what you think we deserve, okay? And 
If you could do that, we would be very thankful because it helps our profile within iTunes, helps us reach more people. And for us, it's all about reaching out to more people, more fans, more people like you who love tennis and like to engage in discussion about this wonderful sport that we all love. So thank you very much. We look forward to hearing from you. Okay. So let's move into the one that everybody wants to hear about. So that would be the Nadal Feder final. Uh, once that became a reality, it was all everybody could talk about in the tennis world. It was a huge deal. Nobody picked this. Nobody could have ever dreamed that this was going to happen. Uh, it was a reality, thankfully. Uh, for Nadal fans, it was a heartbreaker. For Federer fans, it was a joyous occasion. Uh, Eric and I are, are Nadal fans, so obviously for us it was uh, really tough. And, uh, you know, all credit to Federer for, for not quitting in that fifth set because Nadal went up a break right from the get-go in this, in this fifth set. Unfortunately, uh, he could not hold serve. Uh, there was one point in particular where I believe Nadal was on advantage, his, yeah, advantage on his serve. He was in the middle of a point. It was only a few shots. He went to hit a cross-court forehand. It bounced off the net and went into the, uh, into the uh, doubles, and uh, that was uh, back to deuce, and then Federer got a chance and broke him after that. Two points, and it was over. Mm. So it was tough. Um, thought maybe Nadal could still make his way back in, maybe break him. He had chances uh, even at 5-4, Federer serving for the match. He had chances to uh, break back. Unfortunately, Federer came up big on the serve. Um it just uh, wasn't wasn't meant to be, and unfortunately, Nadal lost, but Federer won. However, it was a great match, uh, a lot of really good shot making, um, good stuff. Uh, it, it it was a great final. It was, it was a great final. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a seesaw affair there in, in the fifth set. Um, you know, it was a lot of breath holding, but you know, I, I Nadal uh, just as surprised as Federer to be back in the final. I know they worked hard for it, but. You know, I think Father Time is knocking on Federer's door. I think when it came to that fifth set, um, like I said before, I think Federer was, and he even actually said it before the match in an interview, that he was going to leave everything he could possibly have left on that court. Because I honestly think, you know, he, he thinks he can um, thinks he can win, but I, I think he was even surprised. So it was one of those... Things where, you know, Australian Open has always been good to him. Yeah, he lost to Nadal in 09, but I think he just wanted it more. I think Nadal needs to overcome a little issue he's been having recently with being up a break, going into the deciding sets, and then somehow losing. Whether it be a three-set match or a five-set match, that's happened to him a little bit more recently. Where that's If I have to nitpick over something that that he needs to work on with the new coach and Tony is, uh, you know, it's not at all old where, you know, when he was up, you know, he would, he would just motor through the rest of it. And now he's up and he's breaking and he's up a break, but then he's letting people get back in the match. Similar to what Federer let Djokovic do to him when he had match points on Djokovic at the U S open twice, you know, it was one of those things that it, it's it, it either it can be an age thing or a confidence thing. And hopefully that's going to evaporate here. He's going to take a lot of positives out of this match. But when I watched that fifth set, you know, I watched, you know, Federer play out of his mind too. It, don't get me wrong. It's not like Nadal faltered. You know, Federer's return 
was the best of the entire match was in fifth set. He, he won 50% of Nadal's points, serve points. So it's really tough to win when you're only winning half your points because you have to string them all together to get your game. So I think it's one of those things that I saw Federer just won it more. I think it meant more to him to win than Nadal to win. I think Nadal didn't matter what was happening. He was going to take positives out of it, and he did. But I, I just saw in Federer's eyes, and I didn't want to see it. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But I saw in Federer's eyes that, that he wanted it. Um, and, and it's one of those things that I, I think now, I, I was talking to uh, Mikey before the podcast here, that depend, you know, I don't think no matter how this year goes, it's a possibility now that we may see Federer retire at the end of the year. Yeah, uh, Michael, I want to let you go here in a second, but if, just let me throw no, my no, thoughts out there. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Nadal, the the whole thing. Um, and the sad thing is that this match reminded me of the 2012 Australian Open final against Djokovic. Uh, in that match, for people that don't remember, and unfortunately it's seared into my brain for, for life, um, Nadal was up 4-2, in the fifth set, he was up 30-15 on his serve. Uh, they got into a very short rally. Djokovic hit maybe the worst drop shot I've ever seen him hit in maybe his entire career. It was so bad, in fact, that literally, even though he was at the net, Nadal could run in and had a billion you know, minutes or to hit wherever he wanted to. He could hit it right at Djokovic. He could have hit anywhere. And unfortunately, I don't know if he thought that Djokovic was going to make a move and stick his racket out or whatever, but he ended up trying to hit, <laughs> trying to paint the line. I don't know why. He had so much room there. But ultimately, it was out by practically nothing. And uh, then all of a sudden, it was 30 all. Djokovic roared back, broke, and the match was over. And this reminded me just like that because Nadal was up. And unfortunately, I think... Both players were on the cusp of understanding what they were going to get by winning this. And Nadal knew how close he was at that point, and he unfortunately got tentative. Um, even though Federer was playing out of his mind in that fifth set, I started to see a lot more short balls from Nadal. Um, it wasn't even like he was being stretched out super wide. I just saw a lot of getting it across the net without without really being aggressive and pushing Federer you know, towards the corners and, and making him work for some of these shots. And um, I think that really hurt him in the end. Uh, I do think that there's a, still a little bit of that lack of belief at this point. Feder, like you said, he was he was going for broke on some of those points. Uh, he was being very aggressive. I mean, some of those shots really could have been misses, uh, hit the net or out. Uh, they just happened to land in. It was... Um, he took the match by the scruff of its neck and uh, just said, you know what, I'm going to hit everything I can. I'm going to close my eyes, swing, and oh my God, it's in. Great. And that's basically what I felt like happened. It all just didn't do enough when he had to do, do it. Uh, he, there's a few points he should have won there. He didn't. Um, and ultimately... I think that's why you know lost and Federer won, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll credit to him on that one. So Michael, go ahead. What are you, your thoughts on the match? So for the most part, I I agree with you guys in in most terms of things. I saw things slightly different. Again, I was rooting for Roger here though, <laughs> but um, I, I'm going to be quite honest. That was the best I have ever seen Roger hit his backhand in his entire career. True. And had he done this 
made these kind of changes and hit like that in 2006, we might have been talking about a completely different thing at this point. Roger might have 25 slams. Um, but but basically, um, for the most part, um, I don't think either guy played a bad match. Um, what you guys were alluding to with Nadal, with um, him being tentative, uh, in my, from what I saw, I agree with you guys that he was tentative, but I think the main reason he was tentative, Roger was really going after the backhand down the line and cross court. Um, he wasn't hitting the backhand hard up the middle. It was either going down the line or cross court. And I saw a lot of instances where Nadal didn't back up and Roger would go for those shots. And when those shots were falling, which they did a lot, um, it was putting Nadal in a horribly bad defensive position where Roger basically had a wide open shot on the next, you know, on the reply. Yeah. Um, so again, I agree with you guys. Nadal could have been much more aggressive in that fifth set. Um, I think, especially after he got that break. Yeah. I think he felt he had it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, with all the history that has gone on and with everything that has gone on in this rivalry, I myself, truly, before the match even started, when I went to bed last night, I did not think that Roger Federer was going to win today. Yeah. I, I hands down did not think that was going to happen. Right. Even with, you know, doing doing what he did against Stan and, you know, you know taking it in the fifth set, I really did not believe he was going to win it. Uh, but he showed something today that I haven't seen out of Roger Federer in a long time, um, that, that he uh, found a resolve that I, I didn't think that he had at 35 years old and coming off of this layoff. Um, I, I didn't see this happening. But it, it was a great final, not the best quality we've seen out of these two, you know, point to point or game to game, but still an extremely competitive match and we could not have asked for any more. Yeah, I, I want to say one more thing about Nadal. I think one of the big problems, something he needs to really, he's going to go back and look at this fifth set and I guarantee you as he's doing it, he's going to be shaking his head because I remember screaming at the computer at work today that... Um, there were points where Federer would take that cross or that backhand cross court. And Nadal should have been taking these forehands up the line, or at least some of them, because as, as aggressive as Federer was being, there were at least four points, big points, where Federer hit a cross court backhand that wasn't a winner. Nadal had time, and instead he took it back cross court, and, and Federer then ran around, didn't hit the forehand, or like you said, took the backhand up the line uh, like Djokovic usually does. And unfortunately, Nadal should have taken that shot up the line. Didn't need to rip it, just needed to hit it up the line. Uh, Not paint the lines, just hit it on that side of the court. And I think it could have uh, went a long way to change the dynamics of the fifth set. And unfortunately, I think that Nadal is going to see is that he should have done a few things. But like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, that's- yeah, and and uh, well, the one interesting thing you said about that was because I noticed it myself that Federer actually had a lot more unforced errors from his forehand side than he had his backhand side. Yeah, and that's something you know, Nadal, you know, being being a master of the game. I think if it would have been against anybody else, Nadal would have made the change to his game because he would have recognized all the forehand errors because Federer had twenty eight. Four unforced forehand errors versus 21 backhand. So he was getting, and he had 13 forced errors to Federer's forehand versus only three to his backhand. So he was he was doing better 
against Federer's forehand than, than he was his backhand. But I think it would have been anybody else. He would have changed it. But what has always worked for Nadal in the past? Hitting to that backhand. And the problem is that age has affected Nadal's forehand more than it's affected Federer's backhand. Nadal's forehand is, 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 has to be a lot of spin and it has to be deep to be, um, to be very, uh, to work. And, you know, as you were saying, uh, some of them weren't. When they weren't in deep and they weren't coming up high, Federer was able to, to crush them because he didn't, he didn't need to try to hit the winner um, if it was going to be, it was, it was going to be uh, deep to him. He just hit it back to Nadal's forehand and he was basically, he's going to have another shot because what was Nadal going to do? Hit it right back to you. So he could basically just sit there and wait to get a ball that he could pounce on, and that's what was going on. I just wish Nadal wouldn't have gone fallen back into his old um, uh, old strategy and would have recognized you know that change and would have hit to his forehand a lot more. Because I firmly believe, and nothing against you, Mikey, but I firmly believe if he would have started going against that forehand, Roger's forehand, Nadal had very few backhand unforced errors. Um, very few at all. So I think if, the, if he had a better shot of going backhand to Federer forehand rally than he was having on the forehand to backhand side. So hopefully he takes this and Moya points this out and says anybody else that you go against who starts doing this because Grigor was starting to do it. You know, he'd locked out on that one. You know, he did pure grit and iron will is what won him that one. But the one-handers like Stan, Roger, and Grigor, he's going to have to watch – people are going to do that people have been starting to exploit this backhand down the line or a cross-court backhand or to the all's forehand and they're taking advantage of it if he doesn't start hitting up the line he's not going to find himself in many more finals or even semifinals. so i mean that, that's my piece of advice there from just watching it is that something that needs and i think it's going to i mean i'm happy moya is here we saw what happened already you know, Nadal did, said he didn't believe he was going to be here. I think there's new motivation. He feels healthy. And I'm hopeful Moya, you know, points out some things uh, that, that he sees. And, you know, Nadal is going to go into, uh, you know, he plays two 500-point uh, tournaments next month. So we'll see, you know, what, what's going on in his hindsight. If he can get a couple of small titles under his belt, um, I think you're going to see a very confident uh, Nadal this year. And, you know, I, I got to say, watch out. And being a fan, that's what I want to say. But I got to say, honestly, you know, watch out. And the same for Federer, too. Uh, that, you know, there's no saying that Federer can't make it to another final this year. Yep. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, this match was as much of history repeating itself, but with a different outcome. I completely agree with what you said, Eric. Um, for the most part, Nadal stuck with the game plan from beginning to end. Uh, the difference was that Roger had done something in his game that really, I, I agree with you, Nadal, I do not think, I've always told you know everyone that I talk to that Nadal is the hardest working guy in tennis. Even as a Roger fan, I can admit that. He has done everything in his power to change his game for any surface or any situation. This was the only time, in my opinion, that I've seen Nadal be stubborn and not change a tactic that he you know, had planned for. I completely agree with you. Had he changed his tactics, he very well could have won this match, but he didn't. Uh, he stuck with the game plan of going to Roger's backhand, and time and time again, Roger was able to make him pay for it. Um, but like I said, um, I agree with you both. This is a great outlook um, for both players. Sure. Uh, I think that with this right here, in my opinion, that you know with this kind of outcome early in the year, 
which usually these two guys don't necessarily come out at the end of the year looking, you know, prim and proper, I guess is a way to put Since it. Because they had the layoff. Because of the layoffs in the offseason, they are both in their 30s. Um, the fact that they both came out and played at this level early in the season, so to me, sets. yes, and, and were able to come through in five sets means they're both healthy for the most part. You know, Roger had a little bit of an injury. Nadal seems to be fine, which yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm happy for him in that instance because usually early in the year, you know, some little thing will flare up. It did not. Um, but for both of them, I look at Nadal right now as the favorite for the French. I know you guys might not feel exactly the same way, but I'm thinking like he is the favorite at the French being what he did here. As long as something doesn't derail that, I feel like he can carry momentum like this into the French which I know is a long ways away, you know, it's, it's you know, uh, several months away. But I feel like he, he could parlay this into his 10th French Open title. Yeah. Um, um, well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so there's one thing I wanted to mention still in this match. Uh, one tactic I did see Nadal change is for, for about the first two and a half sets or so, uh, he was serving to Federer's backhand, and Federer was taking it on the rise very early and getting it back most of the time. Um, however, I will say that one tactical change that Nadal made was serving it into the body. Yeah. The body yeah. serve yep. was big. And I think if weapon. Nadal had done that from the start, I think it could have changed some things could in this saved, match. It could have saved him, maybe saved him a break point. I think so, too. Yeah. It they, could they, have, they definitely. Were, when, when McEnroe kept pointing that out, uh, and same thing with um, Agassi's old coach, uh, Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert. Gilbert was pointing it out too. Uh, the body serve working very well. He did it against uh, Grigor. He did it really well. Um, who was before Grigor? That Nadal. Monfils. Um, yeah, Monfils. Yeah, he did it. He did it. He did Monfils there too. I think that's something that you know people take for granted to, to get jammed um, because you gotta you gotta have the feet to get out of the way and then hit a good shot back. I think that's something. I, I hope that's a Moya thing. And I hope that he can build off of that. And if he puts a few more miles per hour under a body serve like that, I mean, you're going to get – he's going to get so many more free points off his serve, shorter service games. He's going to have more energy in the tank to do breaks. So I think one of the best things he can do too is to get that body serve amped up a couple more miles per hour, and he's going to get a lot more free points. And because as we saw what Federer done, Federer had like 24 aces against him. Yeah, uh, Federer, does, Federer served out of his mind Fe- in this Federer, Federer gets a lot of good free points, and you know that his service games don't last very long, and then he's fresher, you know, to go and actually <laughs> try really hard. So I mean, we'll see. And I, I think there's another point we want to talk about here and get into. Yeah, um, was the uh, you know the men's semifinal being played on different days before? Um, yeah, I wanted to bring this up, me, and this is before, my own. Before preface this, by, before, you let, before you let me know that this was what we were going to talk about, I actually brought this up to Mikey downstairs before we jumped on. Here it was the same exact thing I mentioned to him. Why do they not have the semifinal on the same day so the winners get the same amount of rest before? The do you final? know that the other four, three Grand Slams all have their semis on the same day? I went and checked last year's Grand Slam, and they're all on a Friday. Okay, so both the semis start yep. on a Friday. And look, and we want to. I want to preface this by saying I'm not using this as an excuse, okay? Because maybe Federer comes out and it's the same exact result no matter what. So I'm not saying this to people listening, saying, "Oh, you're just making an excuse for Nadal." You're just saying only because 
his semi was the next day, that that's why he lost. Well, I'm not saying that at all, because this isn't the only time I've talked about this. I've said this before. I've said this in years past, because it didn't make sense. And it didn't used to be like this at the other slams, too, right? I think the U.S. Open, which one of them, I think one of them changed, because they weren't doing it on the same day either. It was it was U.S. Open. Was it? Okay. U.S. Open, yeah. Yeah, because they, they kept moving. It was, what, five years in a row, the final moved to a Monday. Right. But that was because of rain. Right. That was because sure. of rain, but they still but they still weren't on the same day though. So But that was way, because of the scheduling of the rain, I believe. Because I think that the US Open always had it with their super Saturday that they called it, where the women's final was on Saturday and the men's semifinals were prior to that. Was am I not correct in that? I, I'm not entirely sure on that. You'd have to look okay. at okay. I'm not sure, but but the point being is you know, the other three slams have it and and here's the reason why I'm mentioning this, because it's simply unfair to begin with it's just it's not fair for any player i don't care whether it's nadal Federer, well, wavrinka it, it's, it's unfair to whoever is in the bottom half of the bracket right. so that's that's the issue is all right people look at it as well that's given the number one seed you know the benefit of the number two seed if they play through you know they're going to have an extra day of rest versus number two seed but that is completely unfair for anybody else in the bottom half of the bracket that would maybe come through because I don't really care if if the semifinals, the top bracket has two days of rest before the semifinal and maybe the bottom bracket. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the winner of the bottom semifinal is going to have the same uh, rest as the top bracket semifinal. That, that, that's the thing. I don't care where before the semifinals you give the top half a second day in a row. doesn't really matter because it's not going to directly affect whoever wins the bottom bracket. You know, So I'm wondering the same thing too. Nothing may come of it. Um, you know, people aren't going to really – Nadal fans are going to bring it up. Um, you know, versus Federer. Federer had two days off. Nadal had one. I think he did fantastic. <laughs> like you said, I can't say Federer wasn't going to win anyway. I think it would have been nice – uh, to get that out of the way because all it does is for the people who are going to nitpick, that's what they're going to do. They're going to pick out little points and be like, well, if they're on another day, maybe he would have won. Maybe he would have. Who knows? But, we don't know. But it but, takes it out of the equation. Right. But it takes it out right. of the equation. And now now you're, you're making it fairly. The other three tournaments did. You know, you have that. Uh, I don't I don't know why it's not even, but that's something that, you know, the women the women's side. The women's side the is day. the same way. Yeah. No, no, it's the same way, I it's, believe. I believe that there's one less day. I believe, um, I could be wrong on that. Um, if that's the way, then I mean, they need to do it for both sides. So that, well, that's just, see, that's this is one of those rules that have been in place for years. But see, this wasn't so bad back in the serve and volley days and like the '70s and stuff. But but in today's physical game, they have to take that into account, which is why I think the other three Grand Slams have. You know, the, the semis on the same day because I think they all realized, hey, you know, some of these matches are going four and five hours and it's not it's not fair because let's let's say let's say for for just sake of argument, let's say Nadal won his semi in three sets and Federer went five against Wawrinka. But let's flip it around. Let's say Nadal played first and, and Federer played second. Right. I mean. It, mm-hmm. And let's okay, you know, let's say Nadal went into the final and he won, and Federer fans were were griping about it. I would completely agree. I would be fully behind them. I would be one hundred percent behind their gripe because it would be understandable, because that's just not because we're looking at it this year from the the frame of both players had five setters. 
to me, as an as a organizer of the tournament, you have to look at it like each tournament semi could be a five-setter. So if you're going to look at it that way, and the time on court, that's always a toss-up. You never know. You know, Federer went three hours and changed. Nadal went five hours. So there was a lot more time on court. But but the fact is it could be a five-setter on each on each semi. And so you're already uh, – you're already, you know – Forcing one player to play that kind of match, but not giving him just the, you know, the same amount of rest. One player starts out the tournament one day earlier. The other player starts out one day later. You know, that doesn't matter. That doesn't do anybody any good. If I start the, the tournament on a Monday, right, and you start it on a, on a Sunday or whatever, that doesn't hurt any of us because we just started the tournament. But at some point in that tournament – that effect well, when it gets to the semis, yes that that's when, when it, it causes problems and and that's just a legitimate change they need to make and this is for any player next year if it's like I said to Michael if next year if Nick Kyrgios is going up against Djokovic in the semis and you have another player on the other side of the draw and it's not on the same day and the other guy like I said is got a three setter and Kyrgios goes five and beats Djokovic you know, Kyrgios, if he's the second match, he is going to be white. He's going to go into that final with no energy. You know, it's just it's just a legitimate gripe. They should all be the same. Yeah, uh, you know, something I was just thinking about. <laughs> um, I think that one simple solution that they might be able to you know employ, and one reason that I think they have this issue now is something to do with Australia Day ceremonies. They have something going on there. I think that is why they've always kept it that way, but still not saying that that's fair, um, is after the first week, have a one-day cutoff right there, and then everybody starts in the same round again as they do at the start of the tournament. Because by that time, at the start of the second week, you have enough matches that you're not going to – you're going to have enough space within the you know the tournament – on all the courts to be able to spread them out and so that everyone can play on the same day, the same way that the U.S. Open does. Remember, they play all their fourth-round matches, men and women. All fourth-round matches are played on the same day for, for, the, for the U.S. Open. What I say is either you, you take a day off or you have everybody play their fourth round at the start. Because all that's going to do is it's going to force whoever is in the quarters to play the next day, play their semis. But it's not going to be a big deal because you're going to be playing the same guy who's had just as little rest as you. But you're right. going to get the same day of rest or two in between from the semis. Because what it is, we looked it up. It's all it right about here. it's all about the finish. No, no, not that. But I mean, I have, but I mean, as far as the timing. Yeah. yeah. But what I have right here, though, Mike, is I looked it up. Is the both women's semifinals are in the same day? They're back to back. Yeah. And then the men's first semifinal plays, and after them, they have the men's legends doubles. You you can fit. There's no reason you couldn't fit. The second semifinal well, there, yeah. One of the reasons they may not want to do it is you need to have a headlining match the next day. What are you going to play on Friday? F- figure it out. I mean, that's not That's really, why I had said yeah, chop really. off one day of the schedule after that first week to reset the field. Well, what they could have done is you know they, what I mean. should have moved the men's uh, – give Roger and Stan that second day of rest in a row and had him play on Friday. They could do that. That's what you could do. So and then had the, the Williams yeah, sisters yeah, play their like semifinals said, that night. It's not going to make a difference if Roger and Stan both get two days of rest when they to play each other because it's the same amount of days of rest to play theirs. Right. Someone may then try to say, well, you know, that extra day of rest is going to help a little bit. Yeah, but not as much as having two days off before you're going to play a final. So 
I mean, I don't want to drag this on, but I, I, I don't know if it's going to change. But basically, if if you're going to make a run to the final, you want to be in the top half of the bracket of the Australian Open. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the way that it points out. Like I said, whether it be chop off a day at the end of the first week to reset the field, or like you said, you know, have have the both both men's semifinals played on Friday, yeah, and then give them the one day off. That's yeah, what they do you know, else. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yeah. There's the, it's simple. It is honestly in our minds simple to make this change, but I'm sure that there's a lot of politics involved that we don't know about. Sure, it's, it's uh, never that causes that easy. it not to be. That it's way, never that but, easy. Look, you know when it's yeah. going to change? It's going to change when there's a Australian player who gets into the bad position of being that second match, and who if they suffer. You know, the kind of defeat where you know an extra days of rest probably would have changed the outcome or could have significantly changed the outcome and therefore it didn't because they had to play that second day. That's when it's going to change because then they'll be like – then the then the crowd will be like – the public will be like, oh, well, you know, gee, he had like no rest. and But, you know, let's not belabor the point. It is something to talk about but I think we got it all out there. So, all right, last three points here. All right, Michael, positives for Roger. Uh, positives for Roger. Uh, at 35 years old, he was able to come back and win a Grand Slam against his biggest rival. Yeah, that that's all I need to say right there. Um, that second, like I said, like I said, I did not believe that he could win this final this morning. When I woke up, and you know, I I got up, I watched the final without seeing who won. I got up, I started watching it with the belief that Roger was not going to win. I thought he was going to be competitive, but I really didn't think he was going to win just because there's a lot of history there and it's it's always been the same for the most part for the last, you know, you know, last half of their rivalry uh, has pretty much been the same outcome. But for Roger, um, as long as he can maintain healthiness, coming and winning a slam here, um, him and Nadal are both very confidence-driven players. I guess theoretically we could say he could win another final this year um, at this point. Uh, Obviously, I don't think it's going to be the French. Uh, There's too many guys out there that that can hurt him on that surface. Um, But obviously we have to look at at Wimbledon as being his best opportunity. And the fast courts of of the U.S. Open now with the way that Australia played, if he plays that attacking style, who's to say he can't do it there either? Possible. All right, Eric, uh, pauses for Rafa. Um, confidence. Um, he's, he's been, uh, without confidence, um, the last basically two years. He, he's, he's got a little bit, he had a little bit of it last year, uh, coming into the French open. He was playing well. He was feeling well at that quarterfinal. He had, he did the wrist injury, um, really flared up. And unfortunately that injuries, you know, break his confidence. It's what's done him in from the get-go when tendonitis in the knees when he was younger you know he, he missed the 09 uh french open in wimbledon the one that uh, roger won because of tendonitis in the knees had to take a break you know he said appendectomy you know it, it seems like for him it takes him a while after an injury to come back i think this is one of the first times he's been truly healthy since you know 2013 when he won two majors yeah um I think that it's going to be really good for him. Moya being a fresh set of eyes um, and, and motivating. And, and I have to say this, the fact that he, that the Federer actually beat him and he just watched someone who's 35 beat him, even if, even if it's his, his rival. 
I think needs to give him confidence too that all right, an older player just went through the draw. Whether it's Federer or not, he just got beat by him. I think he's going to take everything. He's going to feel bad. It's going to suck to lose. But I, I, you know, from what he said in his interview, uh, the the interview afterwards, he's l- legitimately going to take this the best way you can possibly do it. He beat two top ten players plus a Grigor who played well. Well, better than a seed. His, uh, Zverev, yeah, I mean, Zverev, you know, he's going to be top 10 here this year, next year. So he played four, you know, really good seeded players. Grigor, who, who's going to be much better than his seeds, giving him. Give, give him some time for those points to come. His ranking is going to really um, drop down there, get, get a nice low number. But I think that's going to give him a lot of confidence. And he hasn't had this much confidence since. Oh, not. Yeah, he's made the finals three times, but he's also lost them. This is the first time that I think he's going to take the loss and look really good about it. Yeah, he lost to Stan, but he was injured. Yeah. He couldn't come back and, and take any positives out of it. He felt bad that he lost because he, he pulled, you know, whatever it was, back muscle, so on. But then he was injured for a while. He lost to Djokovic. That killed him. I don't think he, he was mo- – I don't think he it motivated him after that loss. I think that hurt him because it was so close, but that was also 2012. Yeah, I mean, we're talking now five years ago of, of that, and it's the same thing with, with Federer. Five years ago is the last uh, major Federer won. Um, so I think he's going to take everything that went well, he's going to take a positive out of it, and, and it's everything. Everything but losing to Roger – he can't say that it wasn't positive. He played net really well. I think that's something he needs to do more. He served a lot better. Yeah, you know his forehand was was a lot better. It's never going to be twenty five year old uh, Rafael Nadal forehand anymore. It's just not going to. You know, it's never going to be the same. But it's back to being a good forehand most of the time. Backhand is looking phenomenal. You know, he very rarely hits an unforced error from the backhand side. So, I think. He's going to be pretty dangerous. Is is he still going to have to worry about Murray or Djokovic when he plays them? Yes. You know, just because they got upset doesn't mean that Murray and Djokovic are going to disappear and we're not going to have to worry about playing either one of those. Djokovic is still going to be the the, the most dangerous opponent for Nadal. And Murray's probably going to be the most dangerous opponent for Federer just because of the way their games match up. So I just think that, you know, Nadal's playing a couple of tournaments if he gets one or two of those under his belt before the the Master Series hard courts, I don't really care whether he does really well on those or not. You know, the fact that he made an Australian Open final, he knows that he knows he can make it to to US Open when he gets to that point. Okay, I think it's now going to turn to clay. If he can get some confidence in clay, you know, the fact that that it it took Djokovic playing a really good game to beat him to beat a, an out of confidence and not healthy Nadal at the French Open, I think you're going to see a really motivated and hungry Rafa Nadal. Because he was so close here, I think it's something that it's just it's just thirsting for this French Open. And you know what? It's, he's going to go back into it not feeling like... Uh, not feeling like a favorite. He doesn't like to feel like a favorite. Djokovic is going to go in as a favorite because he won. So I'm hoping that this all lines up. I'm looking really forward to watching the tennis this year. I mean, in the last couple of years, you know, Nadal's been injured. I've wanted to watch, but sometimes you're like, well, 
you know, I know he's not going to go really far. You know, I even lost confidence because of how he was playing, but I'm genuinely really excited uh, to know that he feels like he can win. So I really want to watch every match as much as I can uh, this year, and I'm, I'm excited. Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to give my final thoughts, and then we will sign off. So uh, for Federer, congratulations. Uh, a great tournament for you. Uh, 35 years old, uh, I think – you know, twilight of your career, we, we know that. Look, I mean, he could play till he's 40. But at some point, we also know that he probably is going to want to spend more time with his kids and not be on a tennis court practicing. I know he loves the game. We might be looking at the last season or maybe next season. But the point is, Roger doesn't have that many years left. And to be fair, probably Nadal doesn't either. You know, I think Nadal has said he's got about three more years left in him, and then he's probably going to be done. He doesn't want to play and not be competitive. If he can't compete for the biggest titles, he's not going to want to play, and I get it. So congrats to Federer. Um, it looks like a, a definitely a good year for you no matter what happens from here on out. Uh, a shining moment in your career. For Nadal, a lot of positives to take. Um, I know Moya has been a great addition. I think uh, he has made Nadal hit that down the line forehand a lot in practice. I just wish Nadal would hit that down the line forehand a lot more in this past match today. However, uh, there's a lot to look forward to. I will say this, though. Uh, If I'm looking at what Nadal can do this year, I think it all comes down to staying healthy enough to compete for the biggest titles. And also, he has to remain confident in his game while also making improvements. He need, like you said, Eric, he needs to come to the net more. He needs to um, utilize some strategy a little more. I, I thought maybe he could have hit a lot more slice shots off the backhand wing today to neutralize that backhand power and uh, pace. Uh, but the, but you know what? Those are, those are hindsight 2020 things. So I look at the future of this year for both players as being bright. I think Nadal's got excellent opportunities And to look at this loss and be able to take a lot of positives out of it instead of just looking at doom and gloom, that takes a lot. um, That takes a lot from a player, and it shows you character. Uh, We've seen Kyrgios be Kyrgios and just implode. Nadal has always been a player of integrity, and to me, somebody that is willing to take an awful moment, such as losing a big match like this and still find something wonderful to take from it is someone that should be applauded because not a lot of players do that. So congrats to Rafa for making a great run and making it a great match. Congrats Federer for making a great match and winning the match. And uh, I think we'll all see looking back that this was one of the best moments, one of the best tournament runs we've ever seen, something to be cherished for both players. So... That's it. I think we're all going to sign off. Everyone have a good uh, week, and we'll be back, I believe, next week for another episode. Until then, have a good time.